Male identifying students are just like any other student that comes into our space. They need to feel belonging as just as much as other students do. Even if they're not a minority identifying student, they still have to have that. We do a disservice to those students if we allow them to walk into our space and assume that they feel like they fit in just because they are male or they are white or they are cisgendered in those capacities. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of World Strides Inaugural Podcast, Changing Lives for Education Abroad, a weekly series of conversations with international education's most interesting thought leaders, as well as discussions on emerging trends, best practices, and innovation happening in our field. I'm your host, Zach McKinnis, Senior Director of Campus Partnerships with World Strides, and I'm really looking forward to this week's episode. Today, we're talking about the gender gap in education abroad and in higher education at large. According to the Institute of International Education, approximately 32.6% of study abroad participants identified as male in the 2019 to 2020 academic year. That's less than one third, a figure which anecdotally will make sense to many of our listeners today. For some context though, male identifying students represented 35% of study abroad participants in the 2000 and 2001 academic year. So, despite the massive growth in education abroad over the past 20 years, the proportion of men enrolling in our programs has, if anything, declined over the past two decades. Why is this? Why is it important? How should practitioners be thinking about this issue? I'm excited to welcome my good friend, Brian Henry, onto the podcast to help us unpack this issue. Brian is currently a program manager in the Office of International Education at the University of Denver and one of our field's brightest rising stars. He's been active in education abroad for nearly a decade and has presented on various aspects of student development, diversity and inclusion, and racial justice. Believe me, you want to find Brian Henry at a conference. He's also just a fascinating guy who I love kicking ideas around with. I can't wait to dive into this topic. Stay tuned because you do not want to miss our conversation today about the missing men in study abroad. Brian Henry, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Zach. Thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to be here and honored. Absolutely. To begin, I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself and give us an overview of your career up to this point and share a bit about education abroad at the University of Denver. Yeah, so my experience is overlapping with several different institutions including public, private, and a couple of flagships as well. So I've gotten to see thousands of students at this point go abroad across multiple institutions and have had the ability to use my career in a very positive way. And I, as you know, I'm quite altruistic in this sense. While our community in international education includes folks from all walks of life coming from a wide variety of entry points, we don't often hear about a military background, as in some other fields. And I know you've had some time in the service. And I want to say thank you for your service. And I'd like to ask you how your time with the military informs your work as an education abroad practitioner. It really dictates a lot of what I do. First of all, it's, it's a huge part of my identity because of a few reasons. One of the biggest being family. My father was in Vietnam. My grandparents were in World War II. And so there's that lineage piece to it. I, of course, started college and then entered 
after my first year of college, entered the military for a short time, which was just a year and a half after 9-11. So that was definitely a huge contributing factor. The other piece to it is my identity as an Asian American, which unfortunately has not been the most positive experience living in the United States growing up here and being adopted as I am. But being raised by American parents and joining the military, in a sense, was my way to prove my American citizenship, which is really, in some ways, good and in some ways kind of sad that I felt the need to do that at that age. But when it comes to the experience, I do think a couple of key pieces that I brought from that ex into international education is the diversity of the military. I was able to interact with many people, the military being the most diverse workforce in the United States. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And it was also integrated, you know, post-Civil War. Well, technically during the Civil War, it was integrated. And ever since then, over time, of course, it's taken a lot of work and it's taken a lot of years, but it has encompassed pretty much almost every aspect of diversity within our country. The other part to it is the discipline. I tend to get up early. I get to work early. And being able to stay on track, stay scheduled is really something that I learned from that. Also, I would say that one of the largest pieces that I bring to the field are the core values that I learned while I was in the military. Even though it was not a career and it was a short stint, there were two primary pieces that I pulled in. One was the Air Force Honor Code. I will not lie, cheat, or steal, and nor condone those who do. And the other part was the Army Honor Code, which is also known as leadership. It's not quite the exact acronym, but um, the leadership stands for loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, and personal courage, or personal sacrifice in some, in some circles. So taking those values that I listed and those values that I learned from the military, I adopt them and adapt them to the field almost every day um, in a variety of ways. I love that. Yeah, thanks for sharing that and, and tying those two very distinct but related worlds together. I imagine your office is much neater than mine in terms of the discipline that you, that you, that you bring to your work. Sometimes. <laughs> but let's dive into today's topic, Brian, which is the intersection of participation rates and gender identity in education abroad. All of us in this field share the dream of bringing study abroad to as many learners as we can. I often call it study abroad for all. We also know that female identifying students have been the most represented when we look at participation rates as a whole, which is a trend that has persisted and perhaps accelerated over time. We're talking about this topic today with a focus on increasing our reach as educators. Simply put, if we want to grow in terms of access and participation, we need to reach more male identifying students. Brian, please start us off by painting a brief picture. For folks who are lit fresher to the field, what are the broad strokes of the numbers we are seeing as it relates to gender identity and education abroad? It really begins with a first look at higher ed overall. Since uh, not to 2010, uh, higher education has been declining, as we know. The interesting fact to that is that higher education has actually been the enrollment was increasing from 1985 to 2010. And then when 2010 hit, it's been an on and ever in decreasing slope. The interesting fact of that is 
that it actually has been across both genders. And for those who may not know the statistics, female enrollment in college has actually overtaken men since about 1975. So it's been on an ever-increasing rate. But the piece to education abroad that then we pull into this conversation is that since 2010, the number of white students going abroad ratio-wise has gone down, but that is because the ratio of students that identify as other races or minorities has gone up. The interesting piece to that is, is that Latin and Hispanic students have actually nearly doubled since 2010 to, 20, to 2021. Kind of fascinating to see that. I also have, if you look at the data, it's fascinating to see the comparison of how costs have gone up ever increasingly as the number of enrollments have gone down. So there may be a correlation there between the cost of higher education, the cost of studying abroad, and then the number of students that we're actually seeing. If I'm recalling my statistics correctly, I believe male students or students identifying as males represent about 42% of the higher education population. And Brian, knowing you as I do, I'm sure you have at least one working theory as it relates to why male-identifying students are less likely to study abroad. Please share us your thoughts on why we're seeing the patterns that we are. Well, it is a working theory, but as someone who has gotten to work in the field for the majority of this time of decline in enrollment, one of the theories that I've seen, as many of us have across our campuses, is that there's actually been a significant increase in students identifying as LGBTQ. And so I would uh, go as far as arguing that because of the value systems that students are identifying with and bringing into higher education, those students are actually seeing study abroad as an opportunity and pursuing it. And so the decline, I would say, is more on the, as we would call, cisgendered uh, male, male identifying students um, is actually decreasing. At the same time, though, the LGBTQ students are increasing. And so it's a fascinating thing. And that, I think, is why we've seen this one-third to two-third ratio since about 2000, at least. And it's stayed relatively the same, even though the ratio of students demographically has changed drastically. One intriguing aspect that you've pointed out to me in a prior conversation that we've had is that this topic could be related to values and the overall landscape of higher education. What about education abroad in particular speaks more to folks who identify as women and less to men, would you say? I think a big piece to that, and we can discuss a little more in depth later, but a big piece to that is the way that we frame the field. There is certainly a large amount of discussion around self-discovery, seeing the world, finding yourself, gaining independence, and of course, travel. Um, and as we know, these value systems, at least generally speaking, um, these value systems tend to be more appealing to female identifying students. So that in itself is probably one of the largest ways that we could enact change is trying to reframe the conversation and reframe how we talk about education abroad to our students. Brian, you mentioned earlier that in your in your past decade of experience in our field, you've, you've had the pleasure of working at a variety of different types of institutions all over the country. What have you noticed from those experiences in terms of the types of programs and even locations that male identifying students tend to find more appealing? There's actually a twofold to this that I 
feel like I should respond to. So one of the biggest pieces is I, I would argue that the majority of men do tend to find shorter term programming most popular. They certainly do not have a shortage of FOMO when it comes to missing out on things on campus. One of the largest areas that I've seen, of course, being athletics and then, of course, Greek life is fairly close. As far as factors that students tend to find that keep them on campus and, of course, can get in the way of trying to study abroad, I would say as a majority, a lot of the males that I've worked with have been seeking career-oriented programming. If they're a business major, they are looking for a program that they can get business credit. And even more likely that they may be interested, many of them are interested in internships or at least opportunities where they can see or do some of the work that they might actually be doing in the future. I do want to also add in, though, that there is a minority of male students, but there are always these students that come into our office and they are looking to further themselves as far as possible. And so you'll see them, they're of course usually double or triple majors, they're in, involved in things all across campus. But these kinds of male students that come into your office are probably looking for adventure, but they're also trying to find ways to better themselves. And so they're the types that are gonna go on your very experiential programming. That's um, interesting. They might be open to internships and classes at the same time, even overloading on classes while they're there. But you'll see them and you'll know when, when you meet these kinds of students because they'll be enrolling in classes that are, you know, advanced for their major as opposed to food and wine in said country. <laughs> Absolutely. Supporting college students as we do means we are working with young people every single day. During these young adult years, students are, are finding their path and there can be a fear of failure or making the wrong choice, whatever that may be. To what extent do you think this fear plays in a the decisions that students make around the decision to study abroad and how is gender a factor? I think the decline in 2010 can really be attributed to the housing market crash. And so a lot of these students have grown up watching their families struggle, watching these changes happen within our society and within our culture. And then, of course, we can't miss out on the fact that over the past several years, the socio-political landscape of the United States has, sh has changed drastically as well. And that can be attributed to political leaders, but it can also be attributed to social movements that are coming into the limelight. That being said, I think one of the, some of the biggest aspects that students are taking into account is the FOMO or the JOMO. For those who have never heard the term, uh, the JOMO is actually the joy of missing out. And so over the past decade, I've actually seen a huge uptick of this in our students. The FOMO is either in terms of missing out on something on campus but the JOMO actually comes in terms of when we present them with hundreds of program options, they don't know what to pick because they have a fear of picking the wrong place and the wrong program. Part of this, I think, is our due diligence or responsibility to try to find programs that will work for these students and trying to focus that down to two or three options, especially for the male students. If you give them a list of dozens, it's going to take them a long time, if ever, do they actually come back to you to choose one of them. The other aspect of this, I would say, is when it comes to generally speaking for genders um, and the psychology behind them, female identifying people and students do tend to be more presently focused. 
Um, and so they are looking to do these things where they're learning about themselves. They're learning about the world around them. They're interested in self-discovery um, or even self-authorship, right? But the male-identifying students or people in the world tend to be more future-oriented. Now, part of this could be attributed to our culture of, you know, you need to find a job, you need to contribute to society, you need to contribute for your family. But males do tend to adhere to that very strongly. And so the programs that are going to appeal to them are going to be different, and they're going to be based on those value systems, most likely. I really like what you said about modifying the approach to advising and being intentional about the programs that you put in front of male identifying students in particular and how you do so. Is there anything else you want to expand on as it relates to advising? Specifically, if, if you're advising students and in any capacity, I think there's a couple of things you should keep in mind. Advisors and others in the field should learn to adapt to the student, adapt to their behavior, adapt to their goals. What are they seeking? Um, especially when it comes to male students, their behavior and mannerisms may be different. And I'm saying this, of course, because the mass majority of our field does tend to be female advisors um, or females in these roles. And so that can be sometimes deterring for male students. They may not feel like they can say certain things. They may not. They may actually avoid certain topics um, because of that. And so that's one of the biggest areas that I could see us um, contributing, but also knowing that male students tend to try to connect in ways that are going to enhance their lives or enhance their future. Talking to them about how study abroad could actually make them more marketable, more professionally appealing, tying it to their career goals or even their personal goals for some of those like myself being a incurable romantic. I chose to study French and I chose to study abroad in France the first time because of that. So um, there is certainly a layer of personal goals that plays into where we choose to go to. We often talk about study abroad as being a transformative experience in this field. Would you please share with our listeners some more of your thoughts on how we should be articulating the outcomes of study abroad in ways that will resonate with male students? I do think that this discussion really needs to be about their future. It needs to be about how a male student could use this opportunity to accomplish future goals. I would also say that you could even articulate it in ways of things to do, check boxes, check marks, whether it's things for them to accomplish. And for some of them, it might even be things to conquer. It sounds kind of odd to say it that way, but for a lot of young male students, that idea of conquering the world really stands out to them and adventure, but in a very different way than the female students that come into the office seeking adventure. And you can imagine what that might look like, but we need to, honestly, I believe we need to challenge them. The male students that come into our office oftentimes may not feel as challenged in the higher education system here in the United States. And so they could be looking for something bigger and they could be, they're probably looking for a different kind of experience when they go abroad. Don't feel afraid, especially as a female advisor or practitioner, to try to challenge your male students that come into your office. By challenging them, I mean proposing non-traditional locations, proposing programs that are might be academically rigorous, opportunities that are going to give them a sense of accomplishment when they're done and when they come home. 
our field has improved in the way in which we articulate study abroad in leaps and bounds in, in, in the time that I've been doing this work. With this in mind, what would be your advice for how female practitioners who may be listening in terms of how they can best work with male identifying students? I do believe that a lot of the discussions that can be had should be a little more informal. For a lot of the male students, you're going to connect with them a lot easier if you can connect with them on a personal level. Um, and it seems odd or it might seem hard, difficult to do, but in a lot of cases, that's what the male students may need. Some of them are probably feeling unattached, especially right now in the current culture and socio-political climate. A lot of male students may not feel connected on campus. I've had a lot of male students talk to me over the years and saying that they don't quite feel like they belong in higher ed, in the college or the university that they're at, but they're just doing it to get the degree and they're doing it to further their career or because they have to, right? Because their family said they had to. And so giving them those connections across campus is going to be world-changing for them. I can say the same. The two programs that I did as a student were actually faculty-led, and they were both female faculty, but I absolutely loved these faculty members. And when they asked if I would be interested in joining them, I jumped at it. But it was because I had that connection with them, and they had some interest in my world beyond me just making a grade in their class. It was beyond that. If advisors, whether you're male or female, if advisors can connect with the male students specifically and give them a purpose to your conversation and give them a purpose to finding opportunities in study abroad, that is going to go a very long way in making them feel like the institution cares, but also that their advisor cares about them. We know that representation matters. And part of successful student recruitment is marketing and outreach that takes this into consideration. What role does a visual rhetoric play in reaching students? I think that the marketing that we do in our field tends to be very female-centric. Of course, that's not entirely our fault because the majority of students going on our programs are female. And so, you know, you want to reach the largest audience possible, right? If you're trying to outreach to diverse students, it can be very difficult, especially if you haven't had different demographics of students on your programs, especially on your programs and taking photos, taking video, um, actually being represented in your student organizations um, or within your office. I think one of the biggest aspects to this that we could adopt for our field is coming up with marketing specifically for male students in which it shows males doing things. If they are in an office, um, they are probably not going to be appealing to it. If it's in the classroom, that is not going to appeal to men as much, unfortunately. If you can catch them while they're on excursions, while they're doing activities, even if it's while they're cooking some foreign food, but if they're out and about and actually doing some sort of activities, especially if it's something constructing something, or if it's an engineering program where they're working with a 3D printer or other equipment, if you can get images of those things and then have those in your ad advertising and marketing, that is actually going to appeal to most male students much more often. Oh, I really like what you said because it ties a couple of points that, that you've already made, Brian, in that intentional visual rhetoric can not only allow male students to see themselves participating in our programs, but can help them understand the outcomes of participating in our programs. 
So we'll have some listeners reaching out to you to brainstorm about flyers, I'm sure. So thank you I for sharing it. that. <laughs> thank you for sharing that, Brian. Higher education is a subculture all of its own. And like any culture, it has inherent values and norms. How do you believe these intersect with gender identity and study abroad participation? I guess we can't actually answer this question fully without bringing intersectionality into it. That is one of the key areas that I like to talk about, and not in the sociopolitical sense, right? Because a lot of people have politicized the term intersectionality. Um, but in the sense of when you go abroad, you're actually going to be given a very different cultural circumstance. And for a lot of students, this is going to be the first time that they're encountering these things. And so whether they identify as LGBTQ or not, if they do not identify as a minority status, so so to speak, um, study abroad is still going to be very different for them and it's going to engage their identity. I always love to share that, you know, I as an Asian male, when I go abroad, the first thing I get encountered with is usually foreign people asking which Asian country I'm from. And typically it's usually asking if I'm directly Chinese, but that of course is not the case. For those who don't know me, I am actually South Korean by birth, but uh, of course, you know, raised here in the United States. But then as soon as I open my mouth and they hear that I, I'm speaking American English, their entire worldview of me shifts as well. Um, and so I think that this is a quite a concept that we could actually share with our students in that their identity is going to get challenged. And it might be the first time in their lives that they actually have that kind of experience as well. We're here today talking about who goes abroad. And we know that female identifying students are the leaders when it comes to the numbers. But if we know this, and we also know that there are more women enrolled in higher education institutions in general, one might ask why the number and proportion of women is not growing even more. What are your thoughts here, Brian Henry? I think that the FOMO and the JOMO really plays out, especially for the female students. I think also our modern culture of socioeconomic values uh, sociopolitical values has really played out for a lot of them. And so a lot of female students now are actually feeling this urge or this desire, or maybe this, uh, unfortunately, the necessity to also come to college to get a job to then be able to afford life. And of course, the overwhelming increase in costs in our nation, the socioeconomic status has has just risen overall nationwide. And so I think women are seeing that and also having to adapt their lifestyle to meet that. The other piece to this, though, is I think that institutions are becoming female dominant, but at the same time, that means that they are also getting as much FOMO as the male students typically do when it comes to doing things on campus. They are, the, they are also the leaders on campus a lot of times, and they are involved in a lot of things. Um, and that plays out every day of their lives, whether it's from Greek life or it's also athletics or it's student organizations or it's events on campus. We have the exact same discussions with them as far as when would be the best time to study abroad and why they may not be able to because of uh, the many things that they're involved in. Sports is certainly a, a barrier, right? Uh, and particularly for all students, but in particularly male identifying students. Can you talk more, Brian, about how our listeners could be intentionally collaborative with athletic departments when it comes to this topic? Really, the biggest role for this is what kind of institution are you at? 
also what kind of office are you in? Because, you know, if you're in an office um, that doesn't deal with uh, faculty-led programming, so to speak, or short-term programming as often, then you may not be able to enact as much change or be able to have as much control over being able to help athletes study abroad. However, if you're in an office or at an institution where your office does have a lot of say over short-term programming, over faculty-led programming, then you may be able to work with the athletics very closely. So um, this, this of course, means like your, you and your staff could go into those departments and meet with the academics leadership and talk to them about opportunities abroad. There are some fantastic opportunities out there. A lot of times it's through providers, um, but also there's some other colleges out there that do kinesthesiology programs and athletics programs. Um, there's a German sport college specifically that I know of that you could take a team to for a few weeks. Those kinds of opportunities where the students could actually go abroad as a team especially and then connect with athletes internationally um, are going to be life-changing, but also give the athletics department an opportunity to provide their students with a very unique experience that not a lot of institutions really get to offer. I think I think athletic travel is a really interesting area. And it's one that doesn't always appear in Open Doors data provided through IIE because students aren't often receiving academic credit. So I, this is an area, you know, World Strides has a whole division to, dedicated to sports. And it's just an area that I find completely fascinating. We know, Brian, that international education is a female-driven field. Uh, how can we ensure that male-identifying students feel welcome in our spaces and have a sense of belonging? Yeah, Zach, I think that's an extremely important question to answer, actually, because male-identifying students are just like any other student that comes into our space. They need to feel belonging as just as much as other students do, even if they're not a minority-identifying student, um, they still have to have that. And I think we don't we do a disservice to those students if we allow them to walk into our space and assume that they feel like they fit in just because they are male or they are white or they are cisgendered in those in those capacities. If we just let them come in and we don't pay attention to them and we don't talk to them and we don't connect with them, they are going to feel as as absent and as disconnected to our office as any other student would. So I think that's the biggest piece to this question that I would I would propose for the field is just being sure that you're talking to each student that comes in in the same capacity um, and being open and honest with them and also inviting them and welcoming them to be in your space and to have discussions that you would with any other student. Incredibly well put. Thank you, my friend. Brian, we know you to be a person who is committed to connecting across campus and across communities. Who are you collaborating with at DU and what irons do you currently have in the fire? I, I, the easier probably would actually be, who am I not collaborating with right now? <laughs> but uh, I, I honestly am a, I guess, as most people who have met me, I am extremely social. Um, I'm very networky, but at the same time, I'm very honest about it and I'm very genuine. You know, I meet somebody across campus or I meet somebody at a conference, right? I actually genuinely care about you, though, and I care where you come from, your story. I care what makes you get up in the morning, what motivates you, 
why you're in this field, why you do the things you do, and what you love. Um, and so that plays out in my work on the day-to-day -day as well, even with the people I collaborate across campus. Um, and so I would say some of the biggest that I'm collaborating with right now, specifically for these kinds of discussions actually, would be Greek life and veterans affairs, and also the community and values department that's here on campus, and then several academic departments. I think if we don't have these discussions and are very open and honest about them, then nothing will ever change on our campuses to help support the students and help make our programming better. Well, we know that education abroad truly takes a village. So I think those intentional collaborations that you're spending time on are, pay off in spades. So, so thank you for that. I, I want to dig into peer networks a bit. What patterns have you observed in the ways that peer networks influence male identifying students versus female identifying students when it comes to study abroad? That's a great area to talk about, Zach, because the interesting dynamic that I've observed on campus, and of course I've spoken with literally thousands of students at this point, is that male students do oftentimes tend to congregate when it comes to higher in higher education. And so when it comes to studying abroad, the most likely opportunity that you're going to see is men that are going abroad in pairs or in small groups. And so if you can do this with students and if you can get them to talk their friend into going, or if you can talk a Greek life organization into going, that is one of the biggest areas that you're going to actually see an increase in male student participation because oftentimes they are not going to be interested. And I can say this as a, as a male identifying person myself, but they are not actually going to be as interested in doing some of these things if they're going alone. Yes, I agree. You know, and it's different to conversation, of course, if it's faculty led, right? Because if they're actually going on the program, like I, like I mentioned, and they're, they feel a connection with the faculty already, that's in a completely different realm because there's also a level of power dynamics and there's a level of respect there that the male students typically are going to find appealing. That, that is definitely one of the key areas that I've seen most prevalently is that if you can take advantage of it, Males do tend to go abroad more often in pairs or groups. And Brian, we can't have this conversation fully without touching upon identity related to sexual orientation. A 2020 survey by the Association of American Universities found nearly 17% of college students identifying as gay, lesbian, bisexual, asexual, queer, or questioning while 1.7% identified as transgender, non-binary, or questioning, nearly 20% in total. So it comes as no surprise that more and more students from these groups are participating in education abroad. How could we ensure that we are reaching all populations with an identity-conscious lens? You know, of course, I believe that every student who would like to and who has the eligibility should have the opportunity to go abroad and our offices need to be prepared to support that. And part of this, as you asked previously, actually is how do you collaborate with across campus to be able to help students go abroad? Because it's not just your office, it is a village. If you can connect with these student groups or if you can connect with the offices across campus that work with these groups very heavily, then you're going to be much more likely to recruit but you're also going to be able to support them a lot better. 
So whether it is working with the mental health offices or support offices on campus, it could be with the disciplinary or student conduct offices to be able to help students to have those discussions. You know, if your eligibility is hindered on you being in good standing, what kind of discussion do we need to have that you may need to improve your behavior or something that you did previously in order to go abroad and to be eligible to maintain your eligibility? The other aspect, of course, is connecting with these groups across campus, because if you have a multicultural office or a black student union or a faith based or any of these connecting with those ahead of time and giving them the tools that are needed to have these conversations with their students is going to go a long way and helping them get into your office. But then, of course, we also have to work on our own biases, right? There's a huge piece to this that plays out in our day to day. But if we have our own unconscious biases when it comes to these conversations, that's going to play out in every conversation we have with students like that. That students that identify in areas that we may not be comfortable engaging with. And if we're not comfortable, they're going to pick up on it much more than we think. What the unconscious mind picks up on psychologically is a lot more than we'd like to admit usually. But that awkwardness or that unsupportive nature is, is going to be felt by the students, whether they are LGBTQ or not, whether they are from another racial demographic or not, especially students, as I've had a lot of conversations with at PWIs or predominantly white institutions, students that already feel like they're outcasted or ostracized on campus. But if you can bring them into your office, talk to them about their life a little bit, connect with them on a slightly personal level, it's going to go miles for them. And I've had, in a weird way, I've had multiple students over my years tell me that I'm the first advisor that seemed to care, and I was their best advisor that they had in college, which is really an honor to be, but it's also a little sad because I'm only seeing them to study abroad. You know, I'm not seeing them through their entire college career. So yeah, that would be my best, my best recommendations for that. Thanks for being such a tremendous advisor to your students, Brian, and, and such an advocate for them. What is a change you'd like to see in the world? You know, at the very core of this conversation, the core of education abroad and international education, also given the current events going on in the world, I think one of the biggest changes that I would love to see is that people start to understand and love and empathize with each other, no matter where they come from, no matter what context they come from, even if they don't see the world in the same ideology and the same mindset, for people to be able to sit down at the same table and have conversations and talk through things in a very kind and compassionate way. Um, now, of course, I am very well aware of the fact that I'm quite an altruistic dreamer in that sense, and I'm very realistic as well. So I know that is there is a long ways to go in that regard, and we may never attain that. But that's that's kind of the work that I do. What I hope comes from it is if I can help our students see how other people live in the world and understand life better because of that, um, and also make them a little softer hearted and a little more empathetic, then I've, I've done a good job in my mind. Lastly, as we begin to wrap up here, I just have one more question for you, my friend. As you think about education abroad in 2024, what makes you hopeful? I think what makes me hopeful is the same reason why I got into the field in the first place. And it's that as a analytical and strategic person that I am, um, I can see how our field can play a very tremendous impact in the world at large. 
our field has a very privileged and very unique situation when it comes to working with NGOs, working with governmental organizations, and having impacts on local and regional, on the local and regional level um, worldwide. And so if we can do our due diligence to teach our students to go abroad and have these impacts as well, the soft power that can be played and used by our field um, to enact very positive change in the world is where I hope and or what I hope to see our field actually does, um, especially in the future, given the current state of, of the world. Well, Brian, I can't tell you how excited I am to get to work and get more of our male students studying abroad. I can't thank you enough for being here. This is such a fun conversation. Thank you for inviting me, Zach. It's been a pleasure. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of Changing Lives Through Education Abroad. This episode concludes a truly fantastic season. I would like to thank my podcast partners in crime and spectacular World Strides higher ed colleagues, Lindsay Kelchner and Sarah Kachuba, without whom this podcast would not be possible. And on behalf of all of us at World Strides, we wish all of you a spectacular holiday season and a very happy new year. We will be back in early 2024 with season three of Changing Lives Through Education Abroad. So keep an eye on your feed for more fresh, fun, and informative conversations with international education's most interesting thought leaders. And as always, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And share with your friends and colleagues. Let's create life-changing moments together.